Hey, deserving listeners. I don't know if you remember, a while back we did an episode on Scientology, and we had a special guest on the show to talk about Scientology, John Attack. Is that how I pronounce it, John? I'm a bit more peaceful than that. I, I say ATAC. ATAC. So yeah. more like a, a tack, like a thumbtack yeah. kind well, of a thing. Possibly, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Not and, in physical appearance, hopefully. But. <laughs> and I was blown away by how much John knew about Scientology, how much he knew about cults, how he did a lot of investigative uh, journalism how for decades and he's written books and he's a super expert on it and uh, I just had no idea how what a wealth of knowledge John would have and when I published the episode I got a lot of positive response from people saying like oh my god you got to have that guy back on the show so here we are with John back on the show Uh, welcome back to the show John yeah, thank you for having me. It was such a pleasure last time. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor here in Seattle. John, we are talking over Skype, and you are very far away. Where are you right now? I'm just outside Nottingham in the heart of England. Awesome. So what, you know, this let's just open-ended question here, John. What other awesome stuff can you tell us about? And if you want to start with a plug for your organization, uh, that might be good. Surely, yes. I'm the director of projects at the Open Minds Foundation, which is an international uh, charity. And um, our concern is to help people to help others uh, who've been manipulated, whether it's by cult groups or um, you know terrorist groups, gangs uh, in domestic abuse situations, because we see that there are common elements in all of these things. In fact, while I, you know, I did speak with you last year about Scientology, I haven't seriously worked on that subject for over 20 years. Um, it's just that people keep wanting to talk to me about it. Um, so my attention has been on the much wider remit of uh, the way that we give in to human predators, the way that we allow human predators you know, into positions of power in our society. Um, you know, we vote them in. And the way that our society has been devastated, you know, human society, you know, from the beginnings, you know, from Sumeria onwards, has always had these terrible people. And understanding their personalities, how we can avoid being manipulated, how we can help those people so that they are put in situations where they can't manipulate us, um, and how we can understand the sometimes very subtle tricks that they use. Um, so, I mean, my journey into Scientology is, you know, and I left Scientology oh, 34 years ago now, um, but I was 19 when I got involved. And there were two questions that really fascinated me and had done from the beginning of my teens. The first was, how could the German people, uh, German-speaking people, have, have voted to get rid of democracy, that 98% of German speakers in 1938, after the Anschluss, the union with Austria, voted to not have voting rights anymore. How could they have backed this terrible regime? And the other question was at the other end of the scale, which is the looking at, I mean, as a kid, I, I read about Jack the Ripper, this horrific murderer who used to maim his victims. How could anybody do that kind of thing? 
excuse me. And I, I, I suppose my life's journey from then on has been, you know, trying to understand those questions and see if there are things that we can do to help the victims of predation, but also, you know, to, to wise us all up about, you know, how it's going on and, you know, how we can help other people not to be taken in. Yeah, so you've dedicated your career to writing, speaking, and also helping actual victims of this as a counselor, correct? Yeah, I, I don't really use the word counselor. I, I talk with people. I've probably helped, I reckon, about 600 people who've come out of you know, high-control groups um, by talking with them. And, you know, I'm, I'm aware of methods of counseling and approaches to counseling. But for me, it's largely a matter of, of, you know, listening actively to what they have to say, making sure I understand what they have to say. And as you know, often that's enough for people, that the idea that somebody cares enough to hear them out and allow them to speak up, it often is, is a very therapeutic process. But the other part is, is putting them towards information that would be useful. So when I was dealing with Scientologists, it, it would be, you know, understanding the creator of Scientology and his bizarre pathology um, and the, contra the many contradictions in his um, teachings. And it would be the same, you know, if I was talking with a, somebody who'd come out of the Krishna consciousness movement or a Rajneeshi or what have you. I moved away from, you know, more direct contact about 20 years ago, because I wanted to understand the psychology, I also started writing novels at that time in the attempt to, because I think that popular culture is where, you know, change happens in society. Um, but, but sadly, I, I didn't manage to write a, a massive selling novel. My, my book about Scientology, Let's Sell These People a Piece of Blue Sky, was a bestseller. But um, my novels are perhaps, uh, I, I, you know, publishers will come back to me and say, oh, you write really well, but I don't think people are ready for what you're saying or whatever, you know, so maybe one day. You also train counselors, correct, on how to help people who are recovering from a cult or a, uh, I can't remember the phrase you use, high, high control relationship. Yes. At Open Minds, we have a number of, of counselors Um have uh, Rachel Bernstein in Los Angeles, who's quite something. My dear friend Christian Sherko here in Oxford, um, Jilly Jenkinson, who's just got a PhD and, and runs a retreat for former cult members, um, Steve Hassan um, in Boston, um, or near Boston, in fact. All of us looking at different approaches to helping people who've been through, through this. And I must say that many counseling approaches um, are really not helpful to people who've been through these sort of authoritarian relationships because sometimes the counsellor doesn't realise that, that they're taking on the, the role of the authority figure rather than um, pursuing, you know, helping the person to pursue their own autonomy. Uh, so you do have to be very careful in, in how you, you deal with people. But we have some, we have material on recovery uh, and some recommendations um, at openmindsfoundation.org. I'm working with a, a counsellor in Holland called Francis Peters, who was herself grew up in the Jehovah's Witness organisation. 
which is a, a very, very strange organization indeed, and huge. They have seven or eight million members around the world, you know, much bigger than Scientology, which in fact has about 25,000, you know, hardcore members. It's, you know, it, it pretends to be very much larger than it is. Really? Only, only 25,000? That's surprising. Yeah, I, I have internal published internal membership reports from the 1980s where they, they say, you know, we've got 25,000 members internationally. And they realized they'd made a mistake because at that time they were claiming to the press that they had 11 million members. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of I, I've known a lot of Jehovah Witness people and had them as clients before. And I've don't think I've ever had a Scientology client. So I guess that's representative of that that statistic. Also, of course, Scientologists are, um, they have a terrible phobia of, of any word that begins with psych. Yeah, exactly. Um, it, it is very rare for them to seek any, any kind of help at all, which was a part of the conundrum for me. As, you know, how was I going to reach these people? Um, because I, I think anybody who is in a manipulative situation, if you say, to, or almost anybody, if you say to them, are you being manipulated? They'll say no. And that's the end of the conversation. Yeah, I, I wanted to, because I'm guessing some of the listeners are wondering about how the pitfalls of counselors as they typically will work with people who are recovering or who are transitioning, shall we say, away from from a high control uh, organization or relationship. <clears throat> and you have you had found, if I remember right, and correct me if I'm wrong, that counselors will essentially go too fast and, and they'll tell the client that, you know, like the client will come and they'll still they'll still have half a brain in that cult world or that, you know, in that sort of strange way of thinking world. And the counselor will say, like, you need to stop thinking that way. And because that's that's all wrong and you don't understand. And, you know, let's look at the data. Let's look at reality. And it's too fast. And the, it ends up either pushing people away or it ends up, like you said, just becoming another controlling relationship where the therapist is being dominant over the client and, and indoctrinating them, so to speak, into another controlled relational thinking uh, environment rather than allowing the client to take their time and, and discover things for themselves and gain control over their own mind. Am I describing this correctly? Yes, absolutely correctly. I think there's a fundamental problem in that clinical psychologists, counselors, are often only trained in individual psychology. And to understand somebody who's been through a group process, you need to understand the group psychology. You need to, um, so, you know, you need to look at the work of you know, Zimbardo, for example, or Milgram or Ash, and look at how people relate in groups. And you have to get through that outer layer first. Um, and there are all sorts of commonplaces uh, um, that you will find between high control groups. Um, I very much like uh, Janja Lelich and Madeleine Tobias's book, Take Back Your Life, which gives a really powerful set of tools for, for dealing with undoing cult manipulations. But I think you, you know, I've even I've had situations where people have come to me and said that they've gone to a counselor and said, well, look, I think you should read something about Scientology or Rajneesh or what, what have you. And the counselor has said, I don't need to. And the, the arrogance, you know, in, in that notion is really quite dangerous that you have to have an empathy for the person's experiences. So, you, you know, it's almost like, you know, going, 
going to a counselor being told to you know pull yourself together and stop being the other end of it you get the application of techniques i'm you know i'm hesitant i I do work with people who use hypnotherapy and um, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing and i am very wary of, of any approach that tries to put aside conscious reasoning on on the, the part of the person now again with with ex-cult members in general they've been subjected to hypnotic procedures in in one form or another um and their consent has been overridden so you know the emdr as, as an approach which is now moving into the countercult field you know i have great hesitation over it how successful it is with post-traumatic stress disorder is another matter and i would like to see some longitudinal follow-ups on that really it's tell me more about that you're you're saying that emdr is being adopted or moving into the counter culture Uh, tell me more about that well um the um international cultic studies association ixa based in the u.s um they have a a text coming out which which will have a chapter recommending emdr for um former cult members um i'm as i said i'm very hesitant because for me there is only one goal in any form of therapy and that is to get the person to become a sovereign self to have autonomy to be able to to think for themselves and it's too easy to believe that you've achieved that when actually what you've done is become a guru and they're now mouthing you know your thoughts you know I'm sure you've, you know, we, we all know the perils of transference and indeed counter-transference where, you know, we, our, the client falls in love with you or falls in hate with you and the same thing can happen the other way. Um, I, and I think it is very important to understand attachment. I, you know, I, I think, you know, Bowlby's work and the, the work that's come since, looking at how we attach and saying, well, maybe the problem is in part one of maturity. I came from a very secure family compared to most, you know, loving, secure, supportive family. And it surprised me to realize, I was reading a friend of mine, Alex Stain, who's a social psychologist. She published a wonderful book last year called Terror, Love and Brainwashing. And she describes her own experiences in a, a socialist cult, uh, I think in Minnesota, very small, very controlling group. And she describes disorganized attachment so that rather than having you know a secure attachment um or a dismissive attachment where somebody's just pushing you away or or an avoidant attachment the three classic forms you have a disorganized attachment so the person that you've you know is meant to be your source of comfort and security is the person who's attacking you and she quite rightly points out this is what happens to to many in abusive relationships that you know, the cult leader is the person who's saying, oh, come here, come here, I love you, and then slapping them, you know, that that there's that conflict. And it becomes almost an infant attachment to a parent that, you know, you become dependent. Now, I was surprised in reading this, and and I have tremendous respect for Alex's work, um, that from her description, I'd never been a cult member. You know, I'd never had a disorganized attachment um, I'd never been traumatized or humiliated or or abused. 
as a member of Scientology, but that's because I was never a live-in member. I was never on the staff, as they put it. I was I paid for to have my head messed up by them. So I was treated with a certain degree of courtesy. You know, I was shouted at twice and, and shouted back on both occasions, not realizing I wasn't meant to. But what happens is that, that one's attachment goes wrong. And the problem is if you have a disorganized attachment and you then go to a therapist, a counselor, trying to resolve that, it's very easy to fall into a similar relationship with a counselor. And I think you have to first of all peel off what I call the cultic shell, which is a set of responses. I mean, I had a case uh, many years ago, a, a young man had been uh, found on the side of the highway uh, by the police on the, uh, we call it the hard shoulder. I'm, I'm not sure what you call it there, actually, that you know, that runs alongside a high, highway that you can pull off onto with the car. What's the word for that in America? Shoulder, yeah. Yeah, the shoulder. And they, the police had found this guy and he was having a conversation with a a two billion year old parrot who was sitting on his shoulder. That's what he told me later. He was taken to a psychiatric hospital. All sorts of things happened to him. And the psychiatrist there said, oh, look, there's this. He was a Scientologist. Send him to this John Atek bloke. And it was remarkable. He'd had six weeks of in a psychiatric hospital. And I just sat and listened to him. And I could predict, I could say, you know, I knew why he was thinking what he was thinking. I knew where it had gone. And he'd suffered an acute psychosis. Uh, the same year, I gave a talk at a mental hospital, which is close to Scientology's um, facility at St. Hill in the south of England. And every year, they'd get a few Scientologists. And I sat down and 14 staff attended. I was really amazed because I know that people in psychiatric hospitals work ridiculous hours. So the thought they were going to use their spare time to, to come and listen to me was, you know, it was really impressive. Um, and at the end of it, um, one of them came up or a couple of them came up and said, you know, how are you able to describe exactly how these people behave when they come here? And that's the understanding of what had happened to them. You know, they've been told that they were infested with lots of little spirits and, you know, didn't have control over their own minds. And you can pretty much predict the behavior of somebody according to their belief system. So you know how they'll view the world. And in that way, you can fairly quickly bring them back to earth. If you don't understand that and you just try and apply, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy or, you know, EMDR or, or whatever else, then things can go badly amiss. Yeah, and you're uh, describing it really well, and it's broadly applicable to the counseling and psychotherapy profession in general in that there's a seduction from uh, that happens to a therapist in a situation where you have a client who in, in some ways is kind of an empty vessel due to their attachment issues and and being abused as, as children there's that there's a seduction to the that the client actually does unconsciously to the therapist to step in as a controller as someone who can tell them what to do who can protect them and um and the client will feel safe but but also quite resentful of the fact that they're not allowed to be independent and it's up to therapists to notice that seduction and and notice and notice their own um narcissistic 
uh, mm. urges to become that that you know benevolent controller uh, over someone's life and there's a, a you know it's it's a it's a fair enough common therapeutic countertransference issue that uh, it's talked about quite frequently but i i have to say that uh, it just anecdotally i know of many therapists including myself i guess at times who fail that test and and you know, it's it's a very easy thing to think as a therapist, like, well, this person is is, you know, really dysfunctional and they're really asking for my help and they're really nice. And you know what? I I have good advice. You know, I, I have good things to say. <laughs> and I, I and I think that their their boyfriend is a jerk. And I think that yeah. she she would be better off without him. And 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 I think that they need to separate from their family of origin their you know their mm. parents are really quite you know abusive in their ways and maybe their boss is kind of a jerk and they should quit their job you know and this is all sounding like we're in Waco and I'm David Koresh yeah. you know like slowly isolating this person and trying to get them you know under my wing cuz my wing is best you know it's a very it's yeah. a very common mistake that therapists will fall into and and it's perfectly natural and I think uh, I think we all have to admit that, and I think that any therapist or anybody who's trying to help people who doesn't admit that it's nice to be adulated, it's nice to you know have um, somebody think that that you're really special and and all of that. Uh, I very early on, because as I say, I, I don't I don't view myself as a counsellor. I mean. Uh, you know, I'm just somebody. I'm, I'm somebody there to facilitate another person's understanding of, of information. You know, so it, it, it's more that I'm showing them something about the group they belong to, um, and showing them how to. I mean, I call it, it for me. It's a chain reaction thing. If I'm dealing with it with an ex-member, I, I started in 2013. I started writing at um, Tony Ortega's underground bunker. Tony is this incredible journalist he, he used to be the editor of the village voice and he just decided not for any certainly not for any financial reason um or for for any health reason that that Scientology was just too fascinating there were there were stories and could he find a story every day and for the last you know five or six years he's found a story every day about Scientology on top of working a real job and, and doing things I started um blogging there because I left the scene in 1996 because I'd been harassed into the ground by Scientology for a period of 12 years. And I was tired out and nobody was there to defend or protect me. Um, and so I moved away. But in 2013, I was, well, 2012, actually, I was, a journalist called Steve Kinane, who was with ABC in Australia and has since written a wonderful history of Scientology in Australia called Fair Game, which has got some hilarious things in it and some really sinister things in it too. But he came to talk to me in 2012 and he said he, he knew this young woman who had been sexually abused from the age of six uh, to the age of 11 by her Scientology stepfather and Scientology's stepfather. She'd gone to the police and been persuaded by um, the head of Scientology's, get this, Citizens Commission on Human Rights, to withdraw the complaint. 
sent back into the house where this guy was physically abusive to her for another five years, joined Scientology's horrible sea organization where you kind of work a 90-hour week as a slave for $5 a week, had five years of doing that and then left. And Steve said to me, well, you know, will you talk to this woman? And, and I was sort of, well, I don't really do that anymore. And, but, you know, I couldn't help it. And I talked to her and I'd sort of thought, well, you know, she was six, she was 11, then 16 when she joined the series. So she left when she was 21. So, you know, I'm going to be talking. Oh, and she then went and got a degree in medical science. Uh, I'll be talking to somebody who's in her twenties. Well, no, she was 37 years old. And for 16 years, this she grew up in it. It was all she knew. Very intelligent, got a degree that actually got onto a master's program and then found she couldn't cope with that. And here she was at age 37 saying to me, you know, Ron Hubbard says that reality is an agreement, you know, that, that all the spirits in the universe agree that the universe is this way and that's why it is. So re is reality an agreement? And I said to her, well, it is if you're a hypnotist, because what you're doing is getting everybody to agree with what you say. But in the real world, no, it's out there, whether you agree it's out there or not. And the next week she came back to me and she said, oh, I've, um, I've used a scented laundry conditioner. And we both knew what she meant. We hadn't talked about this at all. But when you join the sea organization, and that's C-S-E-A as in a body of water, you read something called the hygiene hat. And um, it tells you that you mustn't use anything centered because, get this, this is very important to understand this, the psychiatrists and the other psychs like yourself, I'm afraid, Kirk, are controlling the universe in a conspiracy using scent. And so perfumes are absolutely forbidden. So we both knew that without us talking about it at all, she'd broken one of the taboos, she'd broken a rule. And you know, for me, that's the basic process that has to happen first, that you get the member to be willing to challenge the dogma. You don't challenge it for them. You don't take it apart for them. You might do a little bit to show them. But when they start going, oh, heck, they made me work 17 hours a day, you know, now I come to think about it. I mean, she talked about um, only having one uniform. And so every they'd get in at two in the morning, they'd have to wash their you know shirts and their, their tights and what have you and and then uh, iron them half dry before they went to bed to get up at six in the morning and put them on again and it's when the person says actually that was abusive actually so it's not somebody from the outside explaining anything to them it's and a chain reaction then begins where they start to look at the situation i after talking with her i came back and i started writing about Scientology and recovery from Scientology because I realized that the majority of people who come out of that organization never recover. They never regain their self-determination, their you know autonomy. They will be, I mean, I remember talking to Cyril Vosper, who was a 14-year member. He wrote a best-selling book called The Mindbenders, which was published in 1968, and lovely guy. First, the first time I met him, he said, you know, it was by then, in fact, 14 years since he'd left. And he said, but he still found himself walking down the street and saying, oh, did I commit an overt, you know, a, a sinful or criminal act? 
he still found the words were in his head. He still found it was going on. And you have to help somebody through that before you can address them in counselling. And it'll take, you know, however long it takes. With some people, it's an afternoon. You, you know, they get it. With other people, it takes them years of fighting where they'll still be, you know, being independent Scientologists and believing that, you know, they can achieve supernatural powers by following this route that they've been following for however long. Yeah, I, I, it's just amazing work that you've been doing. And I think that it's generalizable to all of therapy and all of clients in terms of really trying to understand where the client is and where they come from and the system that they exist in and not assuming that a simple statement or a, you know, cognitive automatic thought restructuring process will just simply change that around. Mm. And I guess to me, the thing that I, whenever I run into this with supervisees and trainees, uh, and not necessarily with cults, but just with high control relationships, often it's um, intimate partner violence and, you know, within marriages and couples. And I, the first thing I always ask my trainees is I say, have you ever been in a relationship where you felt controlled and afraid to think independently? And there's a big difference between those who say, yeah, I have been, and, and those who would say, no, I never have been. It, it's such a weird phenomenon. and It's such a weird place to be. And until you either really understand other people's experience or unfortunately go through it yourself, you really just don't understand the malleability of your personality and your and your belief system and your reality and how in some ways it it, it makes me wonder, <laughs> well, I'm not outside of that. So how have I been shaped by my society? You know, that that's always what I'm trying to think, you know, what well, political views do I have? What kind of ideas about medicine or even psychotherapy do I have? Because I've been because it's so around me, you know, I'm, I'm in a I'm in the huge cult called Seattle liberals, you know, <laughs> and and so uh, it's it's disconcerting to think that your thoughts aren't really yours and that you might be outside uh, of quote unquote reality and um, and so uh, it's a very strange conversation that I feel like when I'm talking with my students um, they they glaze over with boredom because they're they're just like huh um, but I want to take a break and when we get back I you mentioned about voting people in to control. And um, as an American, I have a couple questions for you. So can we take a break, John? Yes, absolutely, Kirk. All right, we're back from the break. If you haven't become a patron of the podcast, do so now. Go to patreon.com. That's patreon.com. When you become a patron, you don't have to listen to commercials, and you also get access to all of our premium episodes. So, John, uh, I'm guessing you've been asked about this this past year. Mm, I, I think I can sense what's coming here. <laughs> uh, what do you have to say about it? Anything? What, I, I, I'm scared to ask in some way. Let me reflect first on, on what you've just said, be, be, because I think you've you said something that's vitally important. And that is that um, 
wherever you look, somebody or other is going to come up with this idea. Uh, you know, I, I'm an agnostic, but um, I refer a great deal to religious teaching. You know, unlike the kind of militant atheists, I see that there's a tremendous amount of wisdom to be had there. And one of the things that Jesus uh, allegedly said is that we should watch out for the plank in our own eyes rather than the little bit of sawdust that we can see in somebody else's. And I, I think that that is a, should be a daily reflection that um, we are, you know, in, we're in, within our culture, whether that's a Seattle liberal or, or um, an English liberal, um, and we tend to look at that which is strange to us. I mean, I remember reading, I was a teenager and read um, a book called The Silence by Shusako Endo. And Endo was um, a Japanese Christian. It's a remarkable novel written about the persecution of Japanese Christians in the 17th century. And what struck me about this book was that Endo took certain things as normal and for granted culturally that were horrifying to me as somebody who'd grown up not in the Japanese culture where this was kind of a normal way of looking at things. Um, if we then transfer that into our conversation now, what, what happened um, in America is that the division between the Democrats and the Republicans, and, uh, you know, I am going to admit to having friends in both camps here, um, has become so heated and politics has become such a filthy business. I mean, I'm not, not sure that it's ever been anything but. Um, I think occasionally there are really genuine people who become politicians and who do it for the right reasons. But very much as with the councillor, it's one thing to have one person sit down and adulate you because you're the authority figure now. But when you have a whole nation sitting down and adulating you, your testosterone levels have to go through the roof. Um, so I think the, the kind of combative political system, the two-party system, is inevitably going to lead to conflict and also rouse ancient conflicts. Of course, you know, the discussion about the, the American Civil War, that, that this is still, you know, 150 years later, this is still a hot topic for many people in the United States. And so, you know, people who side with the Confederacy will say, well, it was never about slavery, of course. And, you know, they'll, they'll, it was about, you know, the, the right of independence from a federation or what have you. These arguments are still turning over, the, the racial arguments, the, you know, the land grab of Texas and New Mexico, Arizona, um, California in 1847 being bought from the um, Spanish, the Mexican people. Well, quote-unquote bought, <laughs> you know, under duress. Yeah. Well, yeah, we, yes, absolutely. There, there was a certain degree of pressure. But, but remembering the Alamo, there was only pressure. And this notion that, um, I mean, a, a dear friend was telling me the other day that he was a patriot. And uh, I said, oh, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, I think the Bill of Rights is the most brilliant document ever written. And I said, well, that's good. Let's go and look at what the dictionary says a patriot is. And it's somebody who's willing to fight for the ideal of their country. You know, it's not somebody who believes that their country has certain values. And that then takes us off into what do we mean by country? 
you know nations were something that was in, that were invented by the ruling classes to bring this kind of adulation so that you know into the 19th century people had to go and fight wars because otherwise they'd be shot for you know not doing what the bosses said and then garibaldi and the prussians and various people brought about this notion of a nation and it i suppose it does come with the founding fathers as well when the united states was actually a very small strip down the right hand side of the country you know um what do we mean by that? You know, I love my nation. Does it mean I love all the people in my nation? Does it mean I love the white people or the the dark-skinned people or the red-skinned people or whatever skin color? Does it mean I love the men um, but not the women? What are our rights? What do we mean by this affection, which is completely abstract? It seems to me that what happened in, in the U.S. election, which I think is what we're talking about, um, <laughs> that, you know, Donald Trump played a, a remarkably good hand. He was he did all the right things to get people to follow him, um, you know, against the will of the Republican Party, which is quite interesting. Do you know uh, Frank Luntz's uh, book, Words That Work? Luntz wrote many of the famous declarations of the Republican Party. And, um, you know, he's a manipulator. He's a spin doctor. But um, John Kerry said of his book, I have it in front of me, Frank Luntz understands the power of words to move public opinion and communicate big ideas. Any Democrat who writes off his analysis and decades of experience just because he works for the other side is making a big mistake. His lessons don't have a party label. Um, the only question is, where's our Frank Luntz? Now, I believe that if Hillary Clinton had taken John Kerry's advice, things would have been quite different. What would that have looked like? Her using short phrases that everyone understands? and He becomes very specific about what you can and can't say. Um, let me open the book up and um, find, see if I can find a ready example of that. Um, towards the end of the book, he, he just um, uh, never say wiretapping or eavesdropping, always say electronic intercepts. Ah. Um, never say deny, say not give. And he talks somewhere in here, yeah, healthcare, never say healthcare choice, say the right to choose. And he also talks about uh, immigrants somewhere here and immigration. Uh, yes, never say. Um, undocumented workers or aliens always say illegal immigrants um, and border security. I feel that if if the Democrats had uh, understood this a little better, they would have, you know, possibly, you know, done rather better. Having said that, of course, we're told that Hillary Clinton received three million more votes than Donald Trump, and it's because of this antiquated system of, you know, the electorates. Um, so, you know, that's asked large questions about democracy. I think what we are seeing is is a divided society, and it's it's a tragedy that whatever his virtues, Barack Obama was not able to overcome that in eight years. He was not able to bring a unifying force. Um, Donald Trump told people what they wanted to hear, um, whether he can do it or not. It is another matter. Um, 
it, I, I would guess, and I'm not a political pundit, but I would guess that when the midterms come, that uh, there's going to be a Democrat House and a Democrat Senate. And so we're going to have the gridlock that, you know, one president after another has had to deal with. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, I blame you for the Electoral College thing, John, because most of our founding fathers, if not all of them, were English by descent. And so um, I, I blame you for that system, by the way. I, Just, I think I think you're absolutely right to do that. Kind of <laughs> I take full responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yeah, I mean, when I look back on 2016, 2016 and the election, I, everyone, including Trump himself, didn't think Trump was going to win with that strategy. And so it's it's all sort of 2020 and looking back and going like, wait, so all that worked because at the time it was like, well, surely speaking rationally and not using funny tweets, you know, or weird tweets that surely that's just shooting him in the foot, you know, and and so I think looking back to Kerry's advice it if in 2016, I would have said to Hillary Clinton, I would have said, stay the course, act like a normal human being. And, you know, don't don't give in to that uh, double speak from 1984. Um, so I want to ask you some questions because I, I, I recently did an episode on Charles Manson. Yep. And I did a mini deep dive into his his life. And mm. and and I really just didn't have knowledge about all the ins and outs. I mean, it's, it's a pretty weird story involving the Beach Boys and yeah. just all these different things. And I was wondering um, what you thought about Charles Manson's technique about in getting people to join his small little cult. Well, Manson actually, um, a guy called Noel Emmons wrote a book called Without Conscience, not to be confused with Robert Hare, the psychologist book, Without Conscience, um, with the participation of Charles Manson. And it's a fascinating book because Manson basically was in the system from the age of 12. In the next 20 years, he spent more years in the system than on the outside. And he said that he was a terrified kid. Um, he was small. He was not physically powerful. He was easily intimidated. And then when he was in prison, he... Um, started to receive Scientology auditing. And in fact, he claimed, I believe, that he had 150 hours of Dianetic and Scientology therapy. And he said, this made me uh, you know, confident and willing to you know, assert myself. Um, as you say, he, he was with the Beach Boys, so I, I think uh, Brian Wilson was was gone by that time and sitting in the sandpit with his in-house psychiatric guru who almost ruined his life completely. And so the Beach Boys were looking for new material. I believe they actually recorded two Charles Manson songs. Yeah, that's true. So, you know, I'm giving off bad vibrations or something like that. Um, very bad vibrations. He, and I think what he acquired was the skill that um, Hubbard himself acquired, which is this realization that it is very easy to manipulate people. It's very easy to control people's attention and divert them from their own best interests. Um, two of his um, followers in the family had also done Scientology. Um, you know, if we're going to get any further, David Berkowitz, the son of Sam, 
uh, had also been involved with the Scientology offshoot. And I think if you teach somebody control techniques, and, you know, Scientology is, they're not kidding. They, they, they use hard sell techniques, and they boast about it. Um, I wrote a little book called Scientology, The Cult of Greed, which was, you know, a 100-page primer for anybody who'd never been, you know, had no experience of it. The piece of blue sky was uh, written primarily to help people who'd been through the experience. But in looking at the hard selling techniques, you know, Hubbard makes no bones about it. He's quite open. This is, you know, these we have, most people are in a hypnotic daze anyway. So let's, um, let's control them. Let's get them to hand over their money. Let's get them to borrow huge amounts of money and give it to us. Um, and I think Manson clicked into that thing that, that for many manipulative people, they realize that you just keep lying and you can get away with it. So I think his involvement with Scientology was pivotal. I think it that was very important. We then come to the end, other end of the question, which is this bizarre thing that he was sent to prison really for conspiracy to commit murder because he wasn't there and he wasn't active in any of the murders. And there's this problem of, if his followers were brainwashed, you know, which was pretty much accepted with Patty Hearst, that, that you know, she was released because she her mind had been taken over. Why wasn't the same true for Manson's followers? You know, you know, who was actually in charge? Well, what do you was, think? Do you think, given your knowledge, do you think that they should have been, especially if I remember right, the three women, the three young women, do you think they should have been off the hook? I don't. I, I no. I I probably take a a different view to most. I certainly take a, a different view to the law as it exists at the moment because the idea of responsibility, which in we talk of mens rea and actus reus, um, the intention to commit the act and the commission of the act. If you didn't have the intention to commit the act, then you haven't committed a crime. So if you're a lunatic then you're not a criminal, you're a criminal lunatic. And I think, practically, we, we had uh, Peter Sutcliffe, who was called the Yorkshire Ripper here, who I think killed seven women uh, with a hammer. And um, he's recently, I think last year, the year before, they've decided he's no longer mad, uh, which is a really interesting idea. But the judge who sentenced him, if I remember properly, said, I don't care if he's mad, he should never be let out again. And I think there's a balance that even if you are, that control by somebody is never a 100% excuse. It's never um, justifiable. We have to be held accountable for our actions. But I think there was strong mitigation to look at the sentencing, that those people, for the horror of the crimes they committed, deserved you know, to be taken out of society. But I think then that, that there's a there's a point where you have to assess them after a certain period of time and say, you know, are they socially fit again? Are they able to, to interact with people? Right. My sense, yeah, the, que you know, the, the question is like, would they have been susceptible to this kind of crime without the charismatic controller brainwasher person and I, 
And without yeah. that person, are they still susceptible? And it brings in all the questions about like, is our criminal justice system and prison supposed to be for rehabilitation or is it for revenge or punishment and, you know, disincentivizing other people in the future committing these crimes and, you know, brings into all that, brings all that into the conversation. Yeah, and all of those questions have to be addressed. But the United States is, I believe, now the only Western nation that has the death penalty. Right, because most Americans anecdotally believe that prison is not for rehabilitation, it's for punishment and, and to discourage future criminals. And so um, they wouldn't say are... that per se, but that's, I think, how they feel about it. I, I think so. I, I, I think so. And, and I think that's a fundamental feeling that we have as human beings that people deserve. Um, if they've committed atrocities, they deserve to be treated atrociously. And I, I the, the problem comes when you look at evidence. Um, there's a documentary made ooh, 20 years ago about a, what was called a reform school in England. Um, the place was called Pepper Harrow. And a documentary had been made about it in 1973. And then 20 years later, they came back. And there'd been six kids who were in the original film. Um, it was a Borstal or reform school, a place for juvenile offenders. Um, one of them had died since the first documentary. One of them refused to be filmed, but the other four were all filmed. And there were remarkable things said. We, in Britain in 1980, a politician called William Whitelaw, uh, working in Margaret Thatcher's government, brought in a policy called the Short Sharp Shock, uh, which of itself is a despicable reference because it's a reference to the Mikado by Gilbert and Sullivan, and it means execution, in fact, a short, sharp shock. Um, so he knew what he was talking about and what he was quoting, but it's this idea of boot camp. It's this idea of we'll beat people into becoming better people. Um, the recidivism rate within two years is 80% in this program. Uh, the recidivism rate at Pepper Harrow was 10%. And they would, you know, I was a bit shocked. They were a bunch of hippies, basically. Um, but, you know, I remember there's a shot of an eight-year-old boy walking around smoking a cigarette, and nobody tells him off. But there was a 14-year-old there, and he was there um, for theft, petty theft. And his explanation was that, that he had three younger siblings, um, that his mother you know, couldn't, wasn't mentally competent to look after them. Uh, and so he had to go and find food. And so he stole food. Now, he'd never been to school. He was 14. He couldn't read and write. 20 years later, he has got a master's degree and he is a senior uh, man in the, the, the child reform system. Um, you know, it, for the county that, that, that he, he, I think, was, was the head of the county. Um and that speaks to the idea that you can reform people. The problem is how many of them can you reform? Um, I'm trying to remember whether it was Wisconsin or Wyoming, but there was a project with hundreds of juveniles where they took kids who were diagnosed with the uh, callous and unemotional disorder, which automatically when you're 18 makes you a psychopath. You're not allowed to call anybody who's under 18. And they, they, Separated the groups, um, I think it was Kent Keel who, who talked about this in, in one of his books. 
They separated the groups. There was a control group where they just did what they normally do. And then there was a group who received intensive therapy. And the, the point's always been made that if somebody has this condition, the sociopathic, psychopathic, antisocial disorder, there's nothing you can do about it. You can't cure it. But they showed, again with the recidivism rate, the control group in the next two years committed, after they'd been let out, committed 16 murders. The group that received the therapy, there was no murder attributed to any of them. And so nurture becomes relevant. Yeah, absolutely. The, the idea that just because you measure high on the psychopathic scale means you're doomed to future criminal acts is not supported by observation, even just of the general population. So, so yeah, and... There are efforts like I, I did an episode a while back with a police officer here in Seattle who started what eventually became called the IF project, IF project. And she worked with uh, women who had been in prison for a major crime, and she would have them write letters to teenagers who were at risk who had also committed, you know, teenage versions of major crimes. And they would handwrite these letters while they were in prison. And, you know, these women are tough. They're, they're, and no. they're not usually asked to talk about themselves. And they're not usually asked to talk about their feelings. And these women really stepped into the role and they said, you know, I'm going to write a nurturing, revealing, emotional letter and to these younger women and these younger women, these teenage girls would read these letters and cry. And it was a huge deal. And it was all facilitated voluntarily through this police officer for the Seattle police department. And so there's these, and it, you know, anecdotally seemed to really, really help. And there's, there are lots of things like that, but just not enough is the thing. Um, when I was a kid, I actually had the opportunity to volunteer for this uh, trip where we went to Idaho or no Montana, and there was a there was a farm or no yeah like a ranch with um, horses and a thousand acres and big sky country and there were uh, we were there to help build a, a basketball court to you know like um concrete and blah 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 and we hung out with these kids that were there so a bunch of us kids went to this ranch and there were kids living on the ranch and we knew the kids living on the ranch were there because they were they were supposed to go to prison but they chose to go to this ranch instead and it's and they were there they had it was like prison but it was a ranch if that makes any sense yeah. Yeah. and they were great kids and we became friends with them and they just seemed like they were taking a break from life and they were rehabilitating and they were learning and, you know, we were talking about our feelings in circles and, and all that stuff. And then on the way out, uh, when it was all said and done, our volunteer coordinator person, he told us the various crimes that these people had committed and we were shocked because it was these people were not 
our stereotypical ideal of what a rapist looked like or a murderer looked like. And, you know, I always think back to that. I always think like, I would imagine that those kids had a much better chance of getting back on their feet and living a happy life, one that didn't cause harm to other people than, than kids who are locked up in some depressing brick uh, institution, right? Well, they're being framed by their fellow inmates in, in crime you yeah. know, and how to get away with it, how to, you know, the tricks and traps and and building their resentment and i mean they, in any relationship you, you you know there may there are times when you have to use force there are times where you know a child is going in front of an automobile and you have to pull them away and you know shouting at them is not going to do it and telling them off's not going to do it you have to physically get in there and stop them and if you have a serial killer then it's a good idea to lock them up you know um even if it's just, you know, for the the sense of safety. I mean, here we had uh, Myra Hindley, who, um, with her boyfriend Ian Brady, had captured, tortured, and murdered children. And she, for years, tried to be let out. And uh, a friend of mine wrote a, a biography of Myra Hindley, and Myra Hindley sued her for libel. And the judge said, given what you've done, there's nothing anybody could say about you that would harm your reputation and dismiss the case. But I believe that given what she had done, she deserved to be incarcerated. Definitely. So I do think that, you know, there's a point where you don't want these people in society. They, they are dangerous. But what that point is, there's um, a neurologist, a neuroscientist called James Fallon, um, and he wrote a book called The Psychopath Inside. He was asked, um, he, he wanted to assess his uh, family to see if anybody had a risk of Alzheimer's. So he's looking for plaques, uh, plaque formation. And there were nine other members of the family and they all had a brain scan. And uh, he had them randomized so he didn't know who he was looking at. And he noticed that with one of them that the absence of part of the paralimbic system, which is said to be a hallmark of psychopathy, was there. And so he said, well, who's this? And his assistant said, well, Jim, it's you. And he then found that he had three of the alleles that are commonly associated with psychopaths. And his mum told him that um, seven of his ancestors, on his father's side, of course, had been murderers, including Lizzie Borden, apparently. So here he, he found himself, age 50-something, and he said um, he was running a couple of biotech companies. You know, he was doing good work in the world. He said that he'd always believed right from childhood that everything is genetic. And for the first time, his conviction was shaken. He realized that his mother had seen that there was something, you know, perhaps cruel about him, um, remorseless. And so she had treated him in a particular way and he came up with the expression pro-social sociopath. So he, he talks about um, he, he went to Kenya and he, uh, went, he found out about the Marburg Caves, where Marburg Ebola came from, from infected bats, it's thought. And he invited his brother over to go on safari there. So they went to the Marburg Caves. And when his brother got home, he realized what Jim Fallon had done. So he, would, he will still risk other people. 
you know, he, he says, you know, if, if I'm going to a funeral and somebody asks me to a party, I'll go to the party. Um, he'll find some mild-mannered, bespectacled professor colleague and get them really drunk and dancing naked on a table in a club. You know, he will push things, but there's a limit he will go to. And that brought him to, to say, well, yeah, even if you do have, if you're born with these tendencies, the environment in which you develop is everything. You know, which absolutely supports this view that, that by brutalizing people, you will make them worse. You won't make them better. You you might force them, you know, when your eye is on them, they will do what you want them to do so they don't get hit. But as soon as your back is turned, they will stab you. So, you know, to be compassionate and, and to be concerned for other people's welfare and not to do this us and them thing, as you say, when you... You know, I, too, have, have met offenders. I, I had a friend who'd been a torturer. Um, he worked for, with, within the British Army in the 1960s. And I'd known this guy for seven or eight years. And he was a very cheerful sort of guy who liked to go and have a drink and, you know, occasionally got into fights and things. And one night he sat down and we were talking and he suddenly started crying. And he talked about what he'd done to people. And he'd, he'd been a soldier. He'd killed four people in action. He had no problem with that because they would have killed him if he hadn't. But when he talked about torturing somebody, he broke down. And seeing that and going, well, if somebody can accept responsibility and feel remorse, then they're probably reasonably safe in society. And you know, developing new approaches because our prison system has failed totally, you know, particularly in the US where you have, you know, the highest per capita um, prison population of any country in the world. And I think they say 60% of them are in prison for things that weren't crimes in the year 1900, which, which is uh, before the Harrison Act, I'm guessing. You know, so there are so many people who are in there because they took drugs. Uh, or, so had, going, or just had drugs on them. Yeah, or had drugs on them, but... Even if they took drugs, it, we've now legalized homosexuality as a victimless crime. You know, that was how it was described in, in Britain when it was legalized in the 60s. It's a victimless crime. You know, who's the victim? And the same with a heroin addict or, you know, something like that. The victim is the person who's the criminal. And in Portugal, of course, in 2000, they decriminalized end use of all drugs. And they've had a massive decrease in crime, well, they've had a significant decrease in crime, but they've also had a significant decrease in drug addiction because rather than being a kind of moral pariah, these people are now treated more in the way that alcoholics are treated. They're, they're people who've lost their independence to, you know, something that gives them a dopamine rush and makes them, you know, chase after that thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the drug thing in America is so strange, and uh, and I I feel it because I grew up in an environment where drugs were very rare. Uh, the first time I saw cocaine, I think I was I don't know in my twenties or something, and uh, and and so it and I don't and heroin even later than that. And so I still it, haven't seen heroin actually though Scientology says I was a heroin addict. <laughs> so there you go. Yeah, and and so it so that's just 
one detail among many that influenced my understanding of these substances Mm -hmm. and the people that use them and why they use them and and why someone would use it habitually and and even though it's a problem for them and really even after I became a therapist in the mid 90s I, I still had a lot of that in my mind and very slowly over time have come to a very different understanding of that entire issue and um and you know i i guess i could go into detail about that but but that's just to say that it's hard for there's so many cultural messages that tell us that drug users are evil or weak or you know crime prone or they, you know, it's a choice they make, or they're just doing it because it feels good, and 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 they could stop at any time if they just decided to. And um, these are low life deadbeats, blah blah blah. And it's just taken me forever to realize, uh, even though I knew it statistically, I just had to talk with a lot of heroin addicts in particular to realize that heroin addicts are. Exactly like anyone else, you know, like in Seattle, we have Microsoft and Amazon and Starbucks and heroin addicts work at Amazon. They work at Starbucks. They they work at Microsoft and they go to work like anyone else does. And and sure, you know, you have your occasional homeless person who happens to be a heroin addict, I suppose. But but it's it's a very common thing. And these people are struggling because it's so hard to kick the habit. And if our society just allowed them to come out into the light, we could actually help them because there's actual ways to help them. It's not easy, but it's their ways instead of pushing them into the back alleys and, and um, shunning them and making them feel more ashamed than they already feel by the way. Um, So John, I wanted to ask you one final question about Landmark. Do you know about Landmark Forum in here in the United States? I don't know if it's in Britain. Earhart Seminar Training, as it used to be. Yeah. I I did a deep dive on this, and my co-host, Umberto, went to it to kind of check it out. And I've I've been to it a few times myself, just peripherally. And I I just wanted to know what what your opinion was. Because to me... It's sort of like Scientology light in some way, and I, I just wanted to know what your thoughts were on it. Well, it's derivative of Scientology, firstly. Um, ben Earhart, um, what was his real name? I can't remember his real name. He was a car salesman, second-hand Jack Rosenberg or something. Um, I was actually contacted by him in uh, 1991 uh, asking for my help to defend him from Scientology because um, – he reckoned they were coming after him. Um, then, um, before I, I didn't respond, and before I'd had chance, the news broke that his children were seeking to sue him for sexual abuse. Uh, so he's an interesting character. Um, lionized as a great hero um, in American culture in the 70s. Then, you know, words started coming out about the breakdowns that people were having and the psychiatric treatment was necessary. And what he said he'd done was that he'd taken the Zen Buddhist notion of a moment of enlightenment, bursting the bag, as the Zen Buddhists call it, and Scientology. And he put the two things together into a large group awareness training, as we call it in the trade. 
Um, for some people, you know, yes, you can you can push them really hard and they have some kind of experience that they feel is positive and people must be allowed to decide for themselves what is or isn't positive. But the problem is that, you know, I remember when I first, you know, many years ago in the 80s, read a list of the um, aspects of a hypnotic state and went, my God, you know, that's what you feel at the end of a Scientology session. You know, the Scientologists talk about having very good indicators, which means grinning and being really happy. Well, that's the euphoria of a hypnoid state. Um, you have some kind of realization that's meant to be a life-transforming realization. But when you talk to Scientology, it's, it, it usually boils down to uh, Ron was right about something. You know, Hubbard was right about something. So the same thing that with Est, Landmark Forum, or, or some of the other, Lifespring, for example, there are many of these groups out there. Anything that induces um, an experience of fervor in a group of people should be looked at with tremendous care. I work very closely with my one of my colleagues at Open Minds is a brilliant guy called Yuval Laor, who I, I really think you ought to interview. Um, he... Uh, he's a bit of a show-off. He, he got a double first in physics and uh, and philosophy. I mean, have you ever met anybody that did a, a double degree in a science and a humanity? I mean, that's just showing off. He then, he then did a master's in history of science and ideas. Um, and his dissertation tutor was Eva Yablonka, Eva Yablonka who is a, a really eminent evolutionary biologist. She's indeed one of the people who you know, showed that Richard Dawkins had got it wrong, that there is more than just the selfish gene going on in evolution. You know, Dawkins still doesn't accept epigenetics, poor man. Um, but there are also cultural things that affect genes. And genes are, in fact, you know, they're not gradually changing. They're changing all the time. So he had this brilliant woman as his dissertation tutor. He then went, he did a PhD in cultural studies, focusing on awe and fervor. And he's done work, you know, I've had the great good fortune to work with him. We, we talk every week for the last couple of years um, on his ideas. And you see the way that, that you can take a group of people. Um, we had a letter published in New Scientist uh, last year, which we, we made letter of the week, which I thought was pretty good, because they'd done a, a serious article about awe, that it was now all right uh, scientifically to consider this heightened emotion which has been avoided because it's thought of as being religious in some way and they they were talking about the positive you know concomitant results of of experiencing awe bliss ecstasy whatever we want to call it and um we pointed out that that while it is true that you you, you know you may you know your physical health your immune system whatever may improve with these feelings this is also where the nazis came from this is also, you know, where genocide comes from in general. If you, if you look at, you know, Rwanda or Cambodia, that you can take a group of people. And I think it's important to get that we have our own personal individual psychology. But as Gustave Le Bon, the first person psychologist to study the crowd and wrote the book called The Crowd in the 1890s, he said that the intelligence of the crowd is the um, lowest common denominator, that the stupidest person in the crowd is the intellectual level of the crowd. Now, I'd say that you have individual psychology, 
group psychology and swarm or mob psychology. And the problem with something like Landmark is that you're putting a group of people together. And I know that you know, in neurolinguistic programming, they were doing this kind of thing as well. And you are heightening emotion so that you get the adrenaline buzz, you get the opioid buzz on the back of that, you get dopamine pumping around, serotonin, all these good things. And people become um, foolish. They, their intelligence, you know, subsides. One of the things that I knew a guy in Scientology, he had a first from Oxford University, and he said to me that when he came to sit his paper, he decided that the questions were stupid. So he just wrote down what he was thinking about. Now, you know, putting aside the hubris in that idea, he did get a first, and he was that clever. And yet he'd, was, he'd gone further into Scientology than I had. He was deeply involved. And so one minute he'd be talking perfect sense, and then the next minute he'd be talking perfect nonsense. And I think the group experiences where we become euphoric, we, we have a sense of awe, which develops into fervor, that, that we put aside our reasoning ability. And underneath this is a very important idea, which um, William James, the other great 19th century psychologist, came to. He talked about noetic quality. He talked about noesis, and that is the sense of certainty. And uh, Yuval and I are both tremendously impressed with a guy called Robert A. Burton, who was um, head of neurology at uh, Mount Zion at uh, UC San, San Francisco. And he wrote this amazing book called On Being Certain, uh, Believing You're Right Even When You're Not. And he really has a convincing argument that our sense of certainty, what we believe in, what we're sure of, is emotional. It's not rational. And that therefore, one of the, you know, the great transformation that we as human beings need to go through, which is, again, what you were talking about before, questioning our own motives, questioning our own, uh, you know, why are we helping people with counseling? Is it to make ourselves feel good? You know, the narcissism that you, you mentioned that is so easy to feel as a counsellor in a counselling situation, our sense of certainty and our sense of worth, um, this is, is an emotional condition. And by beginning to question that, we can, I think, actually progress f further as, as social creatures and be more useful to one another and more careful. So things like Landmark, I, I think, ultimately... I, you know, somebody comes out, you know, there are people who come out of Scientology and say, well, look, you know, I was really a really anxious person. I did Scientology and I stopped being anxious. And I would say that's great. But that's what happened with you. You are the person who achieved that. Don't attribute that to a technique. Don't attribute it to somebody's magical ability, except that it happened in that circumstance. And you know, one of the things that, that I and my friend Christian Jerko would always say, Christian's been working for 40 years with, with uh, ex-cult members, is whatever good that happened to you did happen to you, it, and it belongs to you. Don't think that you have to, you know, I've now left the group, so everything about it is bad. All of my experience was awful. That tendency to black and white thinking is cultic of itself. So accept what was good. You know, you may have uh, fought in the foxholes with other soldiers and, and experienced horrors, but you've come away with a tremendous camaraderie with those guys you were in the foxholes with, and that's not a bad thing.
to yeah, you know, to yeah. That's what uh, that's what the best therapists. I, I remember when I was becoming trained as a therapist, my the the mentors that that I had would often say the same thing. And they would say things like, "Well, y- you know, when you have a client that is doing well and they're really." thankful to you. The client is saying, thank you so much for helping me. And you, you really did so many great things for me. They, my mentors would always say, they'd say, well, what I say to that is I didn't do anything. I mean, maybe I had to a small part in your journey, but really it was all you. And I remember when I was younger and a insecure therapist <laughs> or more insecure therapist, <laughs> I, I would say, well, I'm never going to say that because I want someone to believe that I was an amazing therapist that really helped them. I I want them to walk away and tell other people about how amazing I am. And that was just me being insecure and wanting that that, um, delusion (laughs) upheld. I'm being young. Yeah. And the older I get... 62 now. That's all gone for me. (laughs) (laughs) And and the older I get, the, the more... And the more experience I get, the more confident essentially I am and the more secure I am in my place on this planet. And the less I need that delusion to be upheld and the more I'm going to tell a client in, or a student or a trainee uh, quite uh, convincingly or be- I believe it in my soul that they they were the one that did it. I mean, I, I, I've learned through experience how to facilitate a conversation or something or how to um, set up a, an environment, shall we say, that allows for them to do the work, the hard, hard work of of progressing and developing. But but believe me, if I was the one that did it, I would be magical for all my clients. And I am not magical for all my clients. <laughs> There's only some clients that really transform quickly. And there are other clients that walk away going, I don't know if that therapist was really all that great for me. So, so obviously it's, it's not me, you know, I, I, I had the privilege of, um, having a session with, um, Margaret Singer, um, who, who I believe was an expert witness at both the Patty Hearst and the Charles Manson trials. Um, she was a professor at, uh, UC Berkeley and is famous for the work she did with Edgar Schein in the fifties on returning POWs from Korea and just had, you know, she, by then, by the time I met her, she counseled 2000 former cult members, always free of charge. She would never charge an ex-cult member, which was a rule that I had too. I I didn't charge money for talking with people. Um, she wrote a wonderful book again with Yanya Lelich, who I mentioned earlier called cults in our midst. But I met Margaret and, um, her husband actually had a Nobel was a Nobel laureate for um, uh, functional magnetic resonance imaging fMRI. He was one of the developers of it, and he was still trying to get paid by by uh, the University of California for all the money they'd taken from it. But never mind. But I, I went and had dinner with them, and they're just the most marvelous people. And I, I said to Margaret, "So look, I've been asked Scientology for ten years. I've never gone to anybody for any kind of counselling because, frankly." I haven't met anybody that I'd trust. Uh, I'm coming back to San Francisco in six months' time. Could I sit with you? And she said, yes, of course. And so I spent three hours with her. And she, it was so delightful. She, she, her, her approach was 
exactly the same as mine. And that is you sit, you know, at that time, you sit with somebody and you say, well, you know, what's going on with you? And they will tell you what's going on with them. And that might take a little while. But then they'll, they'll get to a point where they start repeating, you know, and, and that's the point where you, you come in and you've done a bit of active listening, you know, to show that you understand, or to clarify that you do understand what they're saying. And um, so at the end of an hour or two, you, you then say to them, well, what do you think you could do about that? And they'll give you, and you must have had this experience, they'll give you about five things they could do about it. Now, one of them, um, well, three of the things are crazy. One of them will get them locked up and the other one might possibly work. And you say, well, I'd try that one if I were you. And Margaret was able to create an environment in which that happened. And in fact, for me, it was quite interesting because I went into the room and I'd not thought about it at all. And she said, what's going on? And I told her the story. I said, when I was 15 years old, I saw Jimi Hendrix at the Isle of Wight and I saw him 18 days before he died. And it really upset me. You know, I was 15 and this guy died, you know, and he represented something really positive in the world and it was really wrong um and what the consequence you know and then i went on and talked about being harassed by Scientology and all of that horrible stuff but the consequence was that i actually went away and wrote a novel um in which i brought Jimi hendrix back to life as some i don't know as a ghost or, or what have you uh, which meant that i spent two years reading biographies i read 14 biographies of Jimi hendrix i you know, I'm, I'm into hundreds of different musicians. I'm afraid it's an obsessive thing with me. Anywhere from, you know, the polyphony of the Middle Ages through to, you know, uh, Wally Shoup playing free jazz. I, you know, I'm fascinated. Um, swing, blues, rock, jazz, polyphony, anything you like, you know, uh, Stravinsky, anything you like. But I focused on Hendrix for two years and made him a character. And indeed, after the novel was published, there's a guy who, who runs a thing called the Jimi Hendrix Management Institute or something, which is this huge museum. It might well be in Seattle, actually, because that's his hometown. Um, and he reviewed my novel, which is called uh, Voodoo Child's Slight Return, after the Hendrix song. And he reviewed the novel. And he hated the novel. He thought it was awful. But he said, Every detail in it about Hendrix's life and the things he said and did, I think is correct. And the things that he might, because my thought was to bring him back as a 60-year-old and have him, you know, say what he'd have thought through from there. Um, so, you know, a, a simple little experience. This wonderful woman says to me, you know, what's on your mind? And I, you know, immediately pull this thing out from, you know, 30 years before, um, or 23 years before I think it would be exactly and it it started a process in me which was actually a wonderfully therapeutic process and it's for me it's that I, I received a, a letter about 10 years ago as a woman wrote to me and, and the letter went uh, dear John you probably won't remember me and she was right I had no idea I, I don't know who she was I spent an afternoon with you and when I met you, my life was in complete turmoil as a consequence of Scientology. And that was the turning point for me. I now I've had a happy marriage. I have children. I've had a good career. Um, and I attribute this to that moment. But as you say, you're a, a facilitator. You're somebody who is enabling somebody to choose the path they want to go on, you know, to 
so I mean my metaphor in my Hendrix novel was the crossroads because it's a metaphor in all blues music you know that uh, Tommy Johnson the guitar player went to the crossroads gave his at midnight gave his guitar to the devil who tuned it and after that he could play it's been misattributed to Robert Johnson ever since you know and um, but in fact the song Crossroads he he sings he went down on his knees and asked the Lord above for mercy so there's nothing to do with the devil in that but you get that point that we're always at a crossroads and there's always a, a choice to take the other road and as a, if you're a decent counsellor you're, it's almost like you're getting out of the way rather than getting in the way. You're so, allowing. So you're saying I, I'm the devil and I'm tuning people's guitars at the crossroad. Is that is that what I I'm saying? I think you've understood me profoundly. <laughs> <laughs> well, my God, John! Like everything you say, I just think, okay, I want, okay, I got, I got to ask him about that. I got to ask him about that. There's just too many things, man. But I, I, oh, I just, okay, I have already said I had one last question, but I'll just have one last question, and mm, it's just kind of. About Jimi Hendrix, because again, yeah. as you say, from Seattle and a uh, local hero, we have a statue of him, the Experience Music Project, which was the big um, music uh, museum downtown Seattle. It's called something different now, but Paul Allen, the the Bill Gates, the other Bill Gates guy, he built yeah. this museum anyway. He loved Jimi Hendrix. He's a guitarist. It's an amazing place to visit, actually. And I've done late night drunk uh pilgrimages to Jimi hendrix's grave just like every other young man in seattle um what did you think of the biopic that came out four years ago ish did you like I've it avoid, i've avoided it actually oh really i'd be curious to see what you think because it you know it's him in england is the yeah i mean my claim for my novel is that um because i have flashbacks i go back into his life and look at certain things there's so much that you know is generally for some reason not known about him for example that he spent 18 months in the 101st airborne as a paratrooper you know most people aren't aware of that and then that, that to get out of it he claimed to be gay because that you know which he never told anybody that came out much later that that he couldn't stand jumping out of airplanes then when you listen to those kind of noises that he gets in machine gun or um Star Spangled Banner, and you think about it, they're the sounds of freefall. And it was said of him that he, he would hear sounds and he'd say, how can I make the guitar make that sound? So, you know, you have this incredible involvement. But my claim in my novel, and I still say it, is that I describe the actual death of Hendrix and what happened. There's been so much speculation, you know, that the CIA killed him or this happened or that happened. And if you put together the various biographies, um, you can, the story is actually there. It's just that nobody tells the whole story, but I'm not going to explain it now because you've got now got to go and buy the novel. <laughs> Voodoo, Voodoo Child's Slight Return. Uh, what's it called again? Say it again. Voodoo Child's Slight Return. And it, it's published under my slightly more full name, which is John Caven Atak. Atak. And yeah. is, I assume it's on Amazon? It is indeed. All right. Well, John, I, we'll have to have you back on the podcast in another few months or something. To, yeah, let's do that. Uh, this is, I have I so it. many other questions to ask you. you you're, you every, like every sentence you say, I'm like, ooh, okay. Take. I, I've been taking <laughs> notes. I've been like, okay, well, ask him about that. And then you go on and I'm like, well, 
we're too far away from that thing, so I can't go way back to that question. So anyway, we'll have to have you back, but I'm sure the listeners have enjoyed hearing you talk about this. Um, and thank you so much for taking the time to come on our humble little podcast here in Seattle. My pleasure. And let me again plug, um, I'm with the openmindsfoundation.org and free of charge, you can go and look at our website. Um, if you've got a few dollars you want to spend, my book about open minds is called Opening Minds, uh, The Secret World of Manipulation, Undue Influence and Brainwashing. And, um, you know, we're getting good reports from it. Um, I think it would be good to get these ideas into society. Um, you know, we can make we, we can make the world a slightly better place, I think. I think so, uh, too. And if, if your book is anything close to the way you talk, I'm sure it's a fascinating read. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us out there in podcast land. And please take care of yourself and avoid high control or, you know, get help from openminds.org or other therapists that are in the know if, if you're in a situation like that, because you deserve it. Thank you.